The Coram Deo Church community is a missional church rooted in historic, biblical Christianity and committed to cultural engagement. We hope the message you're about to hear spurs you to deeper reflection on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening. Our scripture reading this morning is from John chapter 7, verse 53 through chapter 8, verse 11. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent, de- bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. The word of God for the people of God. All right, well, if you turn to John chapter 8, which I assume you have, um, In the Bible that's under your seat, it's page 840. And what you will find there are some brackets that say this, the earliest manuscripts do not include 753 through 811. So I have an interesting challenge this morning. Uh, I have the task of preaching on a passage that is quite possibly not part of the Gospel of John as it was originally written. So that gives us a chance then to talk about how we got the Bible we have, why there are a few places like this in the Bible, the ending of Mark is one other place where we find this kind of thing, and how a basic understanding of scholarship can help us to understand the Bible and make sense of what's going on here. So we're going to nerd out for a few minutes in textual history, okay? If you go on to seminary after this, I think you get extra credit just for sitting through the next 10 minutes of the sermon, okay? I care about this because I want you to have a deep confidence in the scriptures. I want you to be uh, convinced that this is the word of God and that what it says is true and a basic understanding of how we got the Bible that we have because after all, we're reading the Bible in English and that's not the language it was originally written in. So a little understanding of how we got the Bible that we have and, and all of that is helpful to strengthen our confidence in God's Word. So let's start at a very high level by talking about the doctrine of inspiration. The doctrine of inspiration is the conviction that the Scriptures are the Word of God, that what the Bible says, God says. And this is a basic conviction of Christians throughout history, but it's important that we understand how inspiration works. Christians do not believe in dictation, as though the apostles were just sort of secretaries mechanically writing down what God said. Rather, the Christian church throughout history has held to a view called organic inspiration, which means that God the Holy Spirit worked through the minds 
and the skills and even the unique vocabulary of each human author of Scripture such that the final product is the Word of God and is also recognizably the work of a human author. So to say it another way, the Gospel of John is recognizably the work of John and not Paul or Peter or James. There are differences in how each of these writers write. And so when we read the Gospel of John, we see John's unique way of speaking and communicating. The Bible is the Word of God and yet is recognizably human in its literary qualities. There's much more to say there, but that's a basic doctrine of inspiration. And it's important that we understand that because it is actually quite unique. I was talking to a guy in the back after the 9 a.m. service who interacts with a lot of Muslim friends, and the Muslim understanding of the inspiration of the Quran is much more dictation. It's Muhammad wrote down exactly what God said. We, this, the, the Christian understanding of how we got the Scriptures is much more nuanced and much fuller and leaves much more of a role for each of the human authors to leave their imprint on what we have. So there's a lot more we could say. There's a basic doctrine of inspiration now. How did we get from the original human authors, from John and Paul and Peter, to the Bible that's sitting on your lap this morning? That's a question of transmission and translation, and that gets us into a little bit of history. So, the Bible you have sitting before you this morning is the result, obviously, of 2,000 years of preservation and transmission and translation. Unsurprisingly, the Bible is the most famous, the most translated and the most widely read book in human history. No other book has the impact and the spread and the scope that this book has had. And until the invention of the printing press in 1453, the scriptures were passed on through hand copying. So a scribe would actually sit down and handwrite all 66 books by hand. The word manuscript means handwritten. And so when we talk about the biblical manuscripts, we're talking about all the copies of biblical texts we have from before the printing press. And as you might expect, many of the cultural artifacts of the ancient world are now lost to us forever because of the effects of time and war and cultural upheaval. And that includes all the original manuscripts of the New Testament. So we do not have an original copy of the book of John written by the Apostle John himself. What we do have are thousands of hand-copied manuscripts of that work dating from the 2nd century up through the 16th. Here's what's about to get real nerdy, okay? There are four kinds of manuscripts that we have. The first are papyri. These are the earliest manuscripts that are written on papyrus, which is predates paper. Here's an example of one of the papyrus fragments we have of the Gospel of John. There are also unseals, which are manuscripts written in all caps, like when you're really mad on Facebook, how you write, that's what these are, okay? Then there are minuscules, which are written with like a cursive script that's lowercase letters in Greek. And then there are also lectionaries, which are books the church used for public worship. As you can see, all of these images are available at the Center for the Study of New Testament Manuscripts, which is based out of Dallas. And according to a count from about a decade ago, just so you know, right now in libraries across the world, so by the way, these are not in anyone's basement anywhere. These are like at Harvard University and Oxford and uh, the, the University of Manchester and all of these places around the world. According to a count right now in libraries around the world, there are 127 New Testament papyri, 
322 uncials, 2,907 minuscules, and 2,445 lectionaries for a total of 5,801 New Testament manuscripts. And there's a huge project underway right now to digitize every one of those manuscripts and make them available to the general public online, which is one of the amazing benefits of modern technology. It used to be if you wanted to go read the oldest manuscript of the Gospel of John, you'd have to get on a plane, fly to the Bodalian Library at Oxford University, go into the uh, historic records room where everything is temperature controlled and where there's a librarian who stands over you and makes sure that you don't touch anything, and then you could read the manuscript, right? Now, you can study that exact same manuscript from your couch, in your pajamas, assuming that you read Greek, okay? <laughs> now, you probably know someone somewhere who says something like this, the Bible is full of errors and therefore it can't be trusted. Have you heard that? Okay, well, let, let me give you a sense of what that means. There's kind of a yes and no there. I, whenever I encounter that objection, I'm like, oh, cool, we can talk about that? Great, let's talk about it. What errors are you aware of? Because I know a lot more than you probably do, all right? Have you ever gotten a letter from someone that had a word or two misspelled? Maybe even an email that they just typed fast and mixed around some letters? Like, I got a note this week, a handwritten note from somebody, and it spelled Corumdeo, C-O-R-U-M, which is one of my pet peeves. I'm like, it's on the building, guys. I know it's Latin. Clearly, I can't trust anything else that person says, right? Because they misspelled the name of our church. They're unreliable in every way. No, they made a mistake. Uh, those are the kinds of errors that are present in the New Testament manuscripts. So there's places where a scribe lost his place as he was hand copying and accidentally skipped a line. Or there's places where a scribe was writing the letter I, but it kind of looked like an E, and so the next scribe reading it wrote an E instead of an I. We make these same kinds of mistakes every day, right? If you've handwritten anything, you know, this is quite common. So these are the kinds of things that are present in these New Testament manuscripts. And there is a name for every one of the scribal errors that exists. They, they have scholarly names for each one of them because they're quite common in any handwritten text. And therefore, to get the most accurate English translation possible... There's a discipline known as textual criticism, which basically compares these 5,800 manuscripts to arrive at how do we get to the most accurate text. And there are some rules that this discipline follows. One rule is the rule of majority. So if we have 5,700 manuscripts that have an I and 100 that have an E, it's probably an I. Right? We go with the majority in cases like that because it's easy to imagine. Oh, these are the ones where somebody copied an E and it just messed it up. But that's not always the case. Sometimes there's a situation where the majority of manuscripts that agree are also late in history and where the earlier manuscripts have a different reading. And in a case like that, we want to give some weight to the earlier manuscripts because they are closer to the originals. John 7.53 through 8.11 is a text like that. It's a text that's missing in the earliest manuscripts of the New Testament. Now, on the one hand, this text has all the marks of a true historical account. Almost every scholar who studies in the original manuscripts, this account says, yeah, there's no reason to think somebody's making this up. This has all the markings of a real story preserved to us from the life and teaching of Jesus. But on the other hand, this text is missing from the oldest manuscripts of the Gospel of John. 
And so most scholars believe what we're encountering here is something that really did happen in the life and ministry of Jesus, but that it probably wasn't part of the original text of John's gospel. Let me read to you from New Testament scholar Gary Burge. He says, this story is absent from all of the major Greek manuscripts. The whole range of Greek patristic literature virtually ignores it, but it seems to have a strong currency in the West. It appears in the writings of Ambrose, who died in 397, Ambrosiaster, who died in 350, Augustine, who died in 430. When Jerome began working on the Latin Vulgate in the 4th century, he says he found the story in many Greek and Latin codices. He included it in the Vulgate, and so it entered into the mainstream Latin text tradition and the Western church canon. I know that got a little nerdy, but we're in my world right now, so you guys are just going to hang with me, okay? Uh, what, what he's talking about there is there are two text traditions in the ancient church. There's the Eastern text tradition, which is all Greek manuscripts, and there's a Western text tradition, which Jerome began when he translated the Bible from Greek into Latin in the fourth century. It was a dominant translation throughout the medieval ages and in the Western church, so think Western Europe, Italy, Rome, Northern Africa, in all of those places, Latin was the language of the average person, and so all of them read the Bible in Latin. Whereas if you lived in Constantinople or you lived in modern-day Eastern Europe, you spoke Greek and you read the Bible in Greek. So, the Vulgate, which was the first major translation of the Bible into Latin, had a massive influence on our lives today. Why? because we come from, most of us, from sort of the Western heritage of the old Roman Empire. And the most important translation of the Bible in English is, of course, the King James translation, which took place in 1611. All of the modern English translations are sort of downstream from the King James. And when the translators translated the King James Version, they relied heavily on the Vulgate. And so since the Vulgate had this text in it, they kept it. However, as it became clear that the older Greek manuscripts did not have this story, English translators started putting it in brackets the way we see in the ESV. Even John Calvin, writing 450 years ago, was aware that many of the early Greek manuscripts lacked this story, and so he writes about that rather plainly. So, the million-dollar question is, is this story of the woman caught in adultery the inspired word of God? Possibly. But we can't say yes with certainty. And so here's how I want to preach this text. I want to show you that the point this text makes is a point the scriptures make. That this story teaches us and illustrates for us a truth that the scriptures teach explicitly elsewhere. And so if we didn't have this story, we would lack some of the narrative color that it provides, but the same truth it teaches is taught all throughout the New Testament. And that truth is simply this. The foundation of righteousness is grace, not law. That's the point Jesus is giving us in this story. And so let's explore the basic contours of the narrative. The religious leaders in Jerusalem... The scribes and Pharisees in verse 3 bring before Jesus a woman who has been caught in adultery. The language of the text implies that they have caught her in the act, which means she was set up. Someone rigged a scenario in order to entrap her. They only bring 
her. They don't bring the man who was obviously present. So it's clear at the outset that she is merely a pawn in the little power game they're playing with Jesus. And I know that there are some of you who can relate to things like this all too personally. And so to my sisters in the room who can relate to these kinds of power plays and games, I just want to say the Lord Jesus sees you. And we see you. And we want to be the hands and feet of Jesus to you in whatever ways we can. And so I want you to know, if there's a man in your life right now who's using power in a domineering way, this is a church that's willing to get involved. So this experience for this woman, unfortunately, is not a unique experience. It happens commonly to many. But they bring this woman before Jesus, verse 4, and they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. In other words, they are not interested in actual justice for this woman. They're not even interested in the proper response to adultery. They're actually just seeking to put Jesus in a bind. And here's the dilemma they're trying to place Jesus in. Will Jesus relax the demands of the law? Will he say, yeah, yeah, that whole law thing, that's not as big a deal. In which case, they can charge him with minimizing the word of God. Or will he agree with them that this woman deserves death? In which case, they can just tweet, Jesus favors death penalty for women. And that'll have its own kind of effect, right? Either way, they've got him. Either he has to reject the law or he has to reject any expression of mercy. That's the dilemma they're trying to place Jesus in. What's interesting is every one of us faces the same dilemma as we stand before the law of God. Like this woman, you and I have sinned against the moral law. We have broken the commandments of God. And one of the basic tools the Christian church has always used is just to use the Ten Commandments as a way of expressing this. To just say, hey, let's just look at the Ten Commandments. Understand that each of those commandments, when it lists a prohibition, also implies a positive action. So when Jesus says that, or when, when the Ten Commandments say, thou shalt not commit adultery, that implies sexual integrity and faithfulness. And if we just look at all ten of the commandments... In their fullness, it becomes quite clear. Yeah, none of us live up to this standard. God's law stands over against us, judging us, testifying to your sin and your selfishness and your disobedience and your rebellion. When you are confronted with that fact, when it becomes clear to us that we too have broken God's law, some of us will be tempted to minimize the demands of God's law. We sort of like reframe the law so that it feels less burdensome, right? We do this by justifying our sin, by downplaying our sin, by blaming our sin on other people, by comparing ourselves to others so that we can feel superior to them. These are all ways of sort of downplaying the law of God. Others of us will be tempted to minimize the possibility of mercy. We do this by 
using the law as a measuring stick, by judging and condemning other people harshly, by having zero grace for ourselves or for others. When confronted with the demands of God's law, we're prone either to minimize the law or to minimize mercy. The reason we're prone to these two errors is because every one of us is tempted to establish a sense of righteousness for ourselves based on rule-keeping. All of us want to establish for ourselves a sense of righteousness based on rule-keeping. Think of a rule you have for yourself and for others. I'm not talking about the Ten Commandments here. I'm talking about like the dumb little rules that we live by, right? Rules like, you should always put your dishes in the dishwasher when you're done. Or, you should return a text message as soon as possible. Or, don't interrupt other people while they're talking. Right? Whatever your rules are for human conduct, all of us have these little rules. What's yours? What's the one that you're like, I hate it when people do that? Maybe you have a bunch of them. But just think about what they are. Just last night, uh, my daughter put the dog out in the backyard. 20 minutes later, the dog showed up on the front porch. I was like, why is the dog on the front porch? One of my rules is, if you open the gate, close the gate. Right? So one of my rules has been broken. So I started going through the house like, hey, guys, why is the gate? Who left the gate open? Obviously, someone screwed up here. Turns out it was me. <laughs> Which is what often happens when we judge others by our rules, right? So look, whatever your rule is, here's what I can guarantee you. You feel righteous when you keep that rule. You feel a sense that you're doing things the right way. And I promise you, you judge other people when they don't live by that rule. You turn putting a dish in the dishwasher or responding to a text message or leaving the gate open into a moral imperative and you judge others for falling short in that area. All of us do this. This is what the Puritans referred to as a legal spirit. It's our tendency to find righteousness through rule-keeping, through following the rules. Sometimes these rules are good rules. We can even take good things and turn them into rules by which we measure ourselves and others. Rules like, you should read the Bible every day, or you should come to church weekly. We can turn those things into measuring sticks for ourselves and others. You don't even have to be religious to do this. This is just a basic human tendency. Just think about our politics right now, right? The right has a set of rules. These rules tend to revolve around patriotism and individual responsibility and upholding the family. And because we do those things and the left doesn't, we're right and they're wrong. Meanwhile, the left has their own set of rules, right? These tend to be rules about social activism and about caring for the underprivileged and marginalized and upholding inclusivity. And because we do those things and the right doesn't, we're right and they're wrong. Welcome to your social media feed, am I right? None of us like living in that world, but you know what that is? That's just God holding up a mirror and saying, yeah, guess what? That's just what your heart is like. This is what human beings do. We find rules that we can keep and feel good about keeping, 
and by which we can judge others for their failure. Every human being has a legal spirit. Every human being is tempted to establish righteousness through rule-keeping. And that's what's going on in this text. That's what the Pharisees are doing. So before you're too hard on them, right, ask yourself, man, where do you see that legal spirit in your soul? By what rules do you tend to commend yourself and condemn others? Look what Jesus does in the story, verse 6. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. For 2,000 years, what everybody has been wondering is, what was he writing? Like, what was he writing down there? No one knows. The text doesn't tell us. But most commentators agree, whatever Jesus was writing, what he's doing in the act of bending down and writing in the dust is essentially this. Whatever you guys are concerned about misses the point. It's a way of just non-verbally communicating you're asking the wrong question. The things you think are important are unimportant. The things you're concerned about in this conversation totally miss the point. But notice Jesus neither relaxes God's law nor does he validate their judgment of this woman. What he does instead is to reframe the entire conversation. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And all of us feel the weight of that, what Jesus is doing with that statement, right? Like, well, yeah, that, that kind of ends the conversation, doesn't it? Now think about it. As a basic principle of justice, this is entirely unrealistic. Like if you had to be sinless to serve on jury duty, there's no courtroom in the world that would work, right? But notice what Jesus is doing with this response. The nature of hypocrisy is to see the sin of others more clearly than you see your own. And so what Jesus is doing here is the same thing Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but you don't notice the log that's in your own eye? It's the same thing Paul does in Romans chapter 2 when he writes, anytime you pass judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you who judge practice the very same thing. Jesus is with this statement restoring a right view of God's law. God's law is not a tool of comparison. It's a tool of conviction. It's given to us to hold up a mirror and show us the reality of our sin. What Jesus is saying in saying this is, hey, God's law does not just stand against this woman in her adultery. It also stands against the man who was with her that you didn't bring to the conversation. It stands against the Pharisees in their hypocrisy. It stands against the scribes in their judgmental and critical spirit. If you're going to use God's law to judge another person, you better use it against yourself as well. 
John Calvin, in writing on this text, says this, every man ought to begin by interrogating his own conscience and by acting both as witness and judge against himself before he come to others. In this manner shall we, without hating men, make war with sins. How do we make war on sin without hating, judging, condemning other people? Well, by acting first as witness and judge against ourselves. So the question this story forces every one of us to ask is this, do you have a clear sense of your sins? All of us have a clear sense of other people's sins, right? It's always easy to judge everybody else. Here's the question, do you have a clear sense? Do you have a present sense of your sin? This is necessary for gospel culture. For us to be a church that actually pursues Jesus together, and pursues holiness and integrity together, each of us has to lead out of our own repentance. Like we lead by saying, here's where I need the grace of God. And so as a sinner, I can see the same thing in you as well. You know how I see it in you? Because I do the same thing. So Jesus has said to the crowd, hey, let him who is without sin cast the first Stone. Here's what's fascinating about that. Who's the one person in this scene who's without sin? Jesus, right? He alone has the moral authority to judge her. He alone, of anyone in this situation, has the right to condemn her and to pronounce her guilty. So what will Jesus do? Verse 10. Jesus stood up and said to her. Don't miss that little phrase. This is the first time in this whole scene that this woman has been treated as a human equal. He speaks to her, not about her. When the Pharisees and scribes brought her, they said, this woman, she didn't have a name. She was an object. She was a tool for their little power play. But Jesus stands and addresses her directly, dignifying her, honoring her. Can you imagine the shame this woman is perhaps carrying and feeling? She's been caught in a shameful act. She's had her sin exposed publicly before a whole crowd of people. And she's standing before the one person on the face of the earth who can see her all the way down to the depths of her being. She's totally exposed. Notice what the Lord Jesus Christ does with shame. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Those of us who carry shame tend to believe way down deep I'm not worthy of forgiveness. I'm not worthy of love or mercy. I I probably deserve to be rejected. But the Lord Jesus Christ says to this woman, I do not condemn you. I'm not here to judge you. 
I'm not here to punish you. The rejection you think you deserve isn't coming. Why can Jesus say this? Because he knows that he's on his way to the cross to be condemned in her place for every sin she's ever committed. The one person in the whole story who is actually without sin is going to die in her place for her sin so that she can be set free from sin and shame. And because Jesus knows that's what he's about to do, he can say to her, I don't condemn you. I'm going to take your shame and your sin and your judgment and your condemnation upon myself. I'm going to take it into the grave and leave it there. You're free. And not only does Jesus forgive her, catch this, he restores her dignity by restoring her agency. You know what else shame says to us? It says, you know what? You might as well stop trying. I mean, you've tried to change before and it hasn't worked. You've messed it up too badly. There's nothing you can do now to change. But Jesus says to her, go, and from now on, sin no more. You have your agency back. You can walk in new life. You can make different decisions. You can walk on a different path. He's not treating her sin lightly. He's not saying, hey, adultery is no big deal. Don't worry about it. What he is saying is, hey, whatever's past is past and forgiven and removed and paid for. Now, go and live differently. This story teaches us a foundational biblical principle that the rest of the New Testament teaches everywhere. And it is that the foundation of righteousness is grace, not law. Keeping the rules can never make us actually righteous. Keeping the rules can give us a sense of righteousness. It can make us feel better than other people. But that never changes us, nor is it actual righteousness before God. What actually changes us is grace, not law. What actually drives Christian obedience is grace, not law. Let me show you the Apostle Paul saying the same thing in a very different way. Here we're encountering it through story. In Galatians chapter 2, we encounter it through teaching when Paul says this, For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Do you see who's at the center of Paul's vision of righteousness? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. In his death and resurrection, he says, look, if righteousness could have come through the law, Christ died for no purpose. The whole reason Jesus came to die and to unite us with him in his death and resurrection is because we can't actually become righteous by keeping the law. But Jesus stood in our place. 
And when we encounter His grace, now we actually can live differently. The life I now live by flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. This is what fuels holiness. This is what fuels a life of obedience. This is what gives us a sense of righteousness that produces joy and love rather than condemnation and judgment. It's encountering the grace of God in Jesus. John Calvin says this, in this verse we see what is the design of the grace of Christ. It is that the sinner, being reconciled to God, may honor the author of his salvation by a good and holy life. Notice the order he puts it in. The grace of Christ looks like this. The sinner, being reconciled to God, can now please the author of his salvation through a good and holy life. Jesus came to die for sinners. And as you'll see Jesus say repeatedly, not just in the Gospel of John, but in all the Gospels, you know what the problem is? If you don't see yourself as a sinner, I got nothing for you. Like the problem with the scribes and the Pharisees is not that they're not sinful, it's that they don't see their sin. Because they're still trying to prove their righteousness by keeping the rules. And Jesus is trying to obliterate that and say it doesn't work. It leads to judgment and hypocrisy and condemning spirit and being critical. It's hypocrisy in, in the largest degree. Rule keeping can never lead you to holiness, but you know what can? Grace and gratitude. So John Piper says this, the story points us to the message of the whole New Testament. We are called to be holy as God is holy. God hates sin. But Pursuing holiness without a profound experience of grace in our own lives produces hypocrisy. Jesus came into the world to provide grace through his cross and to establish holiness, righteousness, and justice on the foundation of our experience of his grace. So, come to him for grace and set your face to sin no more. That's the invitation of this text. That's the invitation of the gospel. That's what the whole New Testament is about. Come to Jesus for grace and then go and in the power of his grace, live differently. Let's come to him together in prayer. Jesus, we thank you that you ground righteousness in your grace. Thanks that none of us can hope to be good enough to impress you. Forgive us for the ways we think we're good enough to judge and condemn others. Forgive us for the ways even this week we've used our rules to measure others and judge them as unworthy. Would you this morning give us a fresh experience of your grace? Help us to see again the beauty of not just who you are, but also what you came to do. Help us hear your voice saying, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And may we come to you in a new and fresh way this morning, receiving your grace and going from here empowered to live differently. We pray this for our good and for your glory. Amen.